Let's get into the word. We are just a couple weeks from finishing 2 Samuel. So turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 21. And the last, uh, we're going to begin in 2115 once we start. But here's where we are in David's story. We've been following David's life from all the way through 1 Samuel, all the way through 2 Samuel. Since his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba and everything that occurred there, a lot of the narrative in 2 Samuel has been, it's really uncomfortable, it's hard. You're dealing with the consequences of sin, you're dealing with repentance, you're dealing with cultural issues and family issues. Last week's chapter, very, very hard to read and teach through and understand. It's, it's passages where, you know, you're begging God and you're pressing in for clarity and for understanding. There's some questions of, I don't get this and I can see that. Today is entirely different. Today we get a full unveiling of the Almighty God. And I love passages like this. But the, these, this image that we get in David's relationship with his God and our God today comes out of all of these really hard life experiences. As we begin this morning, we're going to see that there are still giants that need to be defeated in David's life and in his culture. When we first begin, you know, the very famous passage, it's a very famous story between David and Goliath. Here you have this young, teenage, pre-beard, red-headed young man who has been called and anointed by God that he is the singular man who takes courage in God to go and stand against the enemy that is a giant who is defying and mocking God and God's kids and causing fear in the whole culture. We're told in that scene that David picks up five smooth stones. You know, he shirks off Saul's armor that that's not, it doesn't fit him, it's not good for him. In that scene, he chooses these five smooth stones and his sling, and he goes and stands before the giant. And in the power of the Lord and the courage of the Lord, he slings one of those stones, and it sinks into Goliath's head. And then you get the gruesome, gross rest of the narrative that David runs up and gets Goliath's sword and cuts his head off and carries around Goliath's head for about a week. Gross, right? And welcome to the Old Testament. Some of it's pretty hard to press through that we've talked about a lot. Here's a typical pastoral quip is that David picked up five smooth stones because Goliath has four brothers. And as we begin in this morning's text in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, no, chapter 21, verse 15 of 2 Samuel, we're meeting Goliath's four brothers. So let's read this. It says, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. He grew exhausted. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, Rapha, is the Hebrew, the, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, exactly half the size of Goliath's spear, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid, came to his help, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench, lest you extinguish the lamp, the light of Israel. 
Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistines. There, Elhanan, the son of Jaar-Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite. This guy's name was uh, Lami, and we get that out of 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was a war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature, stature, literally great length, they called him Stretch, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes. Yeah, that was one of those, wait for it, you'll get it, yeah. Six fingers on his, each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he was also born to the giant. So when he defied, when he mocked Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So here's the big overarching scene. There's a lot of actually really cool nuggets in this, in this little piece. But big picture is once David became king, we're told that he subdued all the nations around him. We watched the Philistines as this constant enemy during Saul's day, a constant enemy during David's day. And then there was a day, there was a series of multiple battles where David finally subdued the Philistines. David was given peace, north, south, east, west. All these nations were underneath his authority, paying tribute to one degree or another. As we sit in David's sin and this extended period where Absalom was usurping power from his father and the civil war and the disunity that's going on in the nation of Israel, this disunity in the nation is what's allowing the enemies to now raise up again and test the waters to see if they can get some land back. So in this passage, we're described with these four different battles, and each one of them at the head is a giant. In each one of these giants, they're all brothers. They're all siblings of Goliath. They're all the son of a singular guy that's called the giant, the Rapha in this passage. So as you sit in the long arc of David's life, as he is standing before Goliath in courage, he's still standing before this Ishbi Banab in courage, still trusting in the same God, but he doesn't have the sling in hand. He doesn't have a stone in hand. He's got a sword in hand, and he is there as general, as king leading this battle. And what happens to David? David's getting old. He's getting tired. Not a spring chicken anymore. You can see him. And again, this is hand-to-hand -hand combat. We sit in our entertainment industries of MMA and boxing, and we have rounds so that we can give the competitors a breath so that they can come back and go another round to make the competition last longer. Can you imagine how quickly you would get exhausted, even in your prime of energy, how exhausting a battle is? But David's aging. He's probably late 50s, maybe early 60s. And there is a weakness in David physically, not spiritually, not mentally, 
but he's physically exhausted. And that physical exhaustion is putting him at risk in the middle of the battle. Because the hard press of the battle, you're always going after the leader. And this giant is seeing that David is bent over huffing and puffing, and he's, now's the time to get the king. And Abishai steps up in the moment of David's physical weakness. He comes in as an aid to help. And what this communicates is awesome. Because there are moments in your life where God is calling you as an individual and empowering you as an individual to stand up in courage in the face of all the opposition that's before you, to stand strong in the Lord and to move forward in whatever that battle is, whatever that giant is, to go forward in faith, and he will cause you to be successful, you, you alone, in relationship with God. That's rare. That was rare in David's life. Here's a scene that occurs a lot more often, is as you look in this room, this is a community. None of us live in isolation. I have an independent relationship with the Lord, absolutely, just like you do. But your relationship with the Lord impacts me. My relationship with the Lord impacts you. We're doing life together in different contexts. There's certain relationships that are really close. There's other relationships that are more distant. But as you look at everything that's going on in this building today, there is a host of people that have prepared for this morning. There are a host of people that are serving according to their calling, their relationship with God, to honor God, and to serve each one of us together in community. I don't do this by myself ever. I'm never alone. I am always with the Lord and with others in community. And that's what's being expressed in this. David's life, he was continually surrounded with those who were there to help. To help with his calling, to help with his vision, his leadership, and the position that God has placed him in. He's not independent. All of this is in relationship with others. And he has to consider all of those relationships at different times. But here in a moment of weakness... Him being weak physically, who did God provide him? He provided his nephew Abishai to stand in that gap in strength and take care of the giant that needed to be taken care of on that day. And we've seen Abishai a lot. Abishai was a general. Abishai is a, he, we're going to see him in uh, chapter 23. He's one of David's mighty men. But then there's these couple of other guys that we really know nothing about. Sibachai and Jonathan. We don't know anything about these guys, but here are these strangers to us. And here the Holy Spirit has preserved these names. When these other giants needed to be dealt with on the day that they needed to be dealt with, it wasn't David as the hero standing up taking care of the giant. It was individuals as part of a group that got the recognition for they're the ones that dealt the killing blow, but it was a whole army there on that day. But one of the, so not only is it David is, has never been in isolation in his service unto God, even as we sit with uh, Elijah is crying out to God, I'm the only one who's serving you. God says, no, you're not. I've, I've preserved 7,000 other men, prophets, that love me and that are seeking after me. You're not alone, Elijah. Church, you're not alone. You're never alone. You need to wrestle your own relationship with God. You need to ask those questions. You need to pray your prayers. But you have your brothers and sisters around you to say, hey, I need help right now. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. 
I don't know the answer to this. I need some other counsel. I need somebody who's lived through this life experience that can provide some wisdom and context in my life right now. Yes, the Lord speaks to me. Yes, I have a relationship with him through his word. Yes, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, but I need you. I need you as brothers and sisters who are madly in love with the Lord and that are madly in love with each other, right? This is in community, and this is what we're watching in David's life. Abishai coming to aid and in this focus, the, the culture is saying, David, listen, we love you, we respect you, and we need you, but we don't need you on the battlefield. We need you to remain alive because you're a lamp in Israel. And again, this is a specific calling for David's life. He has been called by and anointed by God. That anointing, that definition is Messiah and all that David is to image concerning Jesus Christ to us. That is extremely important biblically. David is a king. He is to be underneath the authority of God. He is to know the law of God. He is to sit as judge. He is to sit as general. He is to take the people out and bring them back. But now as he's aging, he can't do this function anymore because if he goes out, he's going to be a target because he's growing weak and that's going to make him an easier target. So David, you need to stay so that the lamp, the light that you are to image uh, about God to the culture in your submitted leadership that we want to protect and that we do not want extinguished. This whole idea of calling David the lamp of Israel, this is, this is looking at the religious environment. It's looking at the tabernacle in that day where there is a lampstand in the room and that lampstand is to remind the priests and the people that God is present in this place because God and God alone is the source of all light. And David is his representative underneath his authority, and he is to image God to the culture in all things. And we've watched David fail in that in a lot of ways, but we're going to get into a pretty cool song here in just a second. The end of this, again, David, it says that these giants fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And David gets the recognition and the named name because he is the leader in the day and in the moment. But again, nothing that David did was in an isolation. His servants are there helping with whatever God is leading the culture to do in that day. Pretty cool to see just the life cycle of David where you have him beginning his, his public service and public ministry, standing in the name of God before a giant and before an enemy and watching that giant fall. And it's cool to understand that life is hard. It's hard to read some of these stories about his life, but it's good that we have those stories so that we can press into those ideas and what it teaches us about our own hardships in life and our own challenges as we're seeking to follow and honor the Lord in a variety of ways, in a variety of contexts. So now, David, again, at the, at, towards the end of his life, here's these other giants, and it's not just David by himself, but these giants fall as a group is attacking together. Chapter 22, we get a radical shift here. David is not only a warrior, but he is a psalmist. He is a man who is plucking the strings of his guitar. He is writing poetry. He is writing lyrics. Half of the psalms are attributed to him to one degree or another. And here, towards the end of David's life, 
here's a prayer and a song that we get. And I, this, this, is, this, is, uh, this subject matter, I love. I, I, I love to see God unveiled. I love to see the truth about him. I love to see how big and how powerful and how loving and gracious and merciful. Because that's what I need. I need that reminder every day in my mind and my heart. Because all these other things, they cause me to forget that God is always there. And God is really big. And God is really awesome. Listen to this. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. How'd you like my reading of that? Wah, wah, wah. Okay, I could have read it a lot more melodramatic. But so often when we think about God, when we approach his word, it can be that stale in how I just read this passage. When you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that's to tell you that is the personal name that God made known to the children of Israel. If you heard the name Jehovah, that is an older way that people understood and how to pronounce it. I usually say Yahweh because that's how I learned. But the consonants Y-H-W-H is the translation of that word. Religion put a box around that name of God, and we lost how to pronounce it because the religious one says God is so holy, his creatures can't say his name. And that's not God's heart. You said in the New Testament, who do we call Jesus? We call Jesus, Jesus, right? Jesus is our English transliteration, so to say, of the Latin, which is translated from the Greek, Iesus, which is translated from the Hebrew, uh, Yeshua, or Yehoshua, which is God is salvation. So when the New Testament tells us that there is no other name whereby man must be saved other than the name of Jesus, and you're saying Jesus, and what did Mary call Jesus? She probably called him Yeshua. You know, that was his, that was his Hebrew name. But again, his name, it's, it's his identity. We know our almighty God that he sent his son in his son's name. You will call him Jesus because he will save his name from uh, he will save his people from their sins. Um, that name Jesus carries with it all the weight and all of the authority of who he's revealed himself to be. When we sit in God's name that he gave to the children of Israel, Yahweh in the Old Testament, the idea of it is self-existence. Now, how dependent are you for your daily existence? Do you need air? Do you need water? Do you need food? you need shelter? you need clothing? We, you, are, you, we are in constant need. We are dependent upon our parents to, that God uses the vessels to bring us into this world. We're dependent upon all of our ancestors all the way back to the beginning to bring about our lives in this moment. We are utterly dependent upon a creator for our existence. 
God is independent. God is dependent on nothing. The definition of his name, his revelation to his creatures is I am. I am self-existent. There is nothing that I need to exist. I have always existed. I will always exist. Nothing can make me less than I am. Nothing can make me more than I am. I am is the name and the title of the Lord. Our only other option in our culture, the only other narrative that we are handed is that of evolution. And I don't know how each of you has wrestled through that narrative and how that's uh, promoted constantly. Watching a nature show just yesterday, where again, that narrative of evolution, it's, it's bred into that. It is always there. And I'm watching this show just, uh, just in awe of God's creativity as I have a totally different narrative. But the only, that narrative of evolution says that nothing is the reality rather than God is. Evolution is God is not, there was nothing, and all of a sudden there was something, and over time it's progressed and evolved to what we are today. That never made sense to me before I was even a believer. It makes even less sense to me now that I know and understand who God is. But as we sit with David, as he is beginning this song, uh, you can look at it later, but Psalm 18 is almost identical to this section, word for word. But David begins in Psalm 18, this declaration, I will love you, Yahweh. And then presses in again. There's, there's a relationship there. There's an understanding of David's life experience. Remember, late 50s, early 60s, he's had all of this life experiences, the good, the bad, those who have persecuted him, the upheaval that he's caused in his own life. And here's the life experience that this man is seeing. And he begins with Yahweh, you are, and you're mine. Look at all of these definitions. Yahweh, he is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. The language in the Hebrew, he is my cliff. It's not he's just some stone on the ground. I want you to have the image when David is beginning this. Yahweh, the self-existent one, he is my cliff. He is my El Capitan. Whatever mountain you can think of that makes your eyes go like this and say, wow, Yahweh is my cliff. And not only is he my cliff, he is my strong, he is the fortress on top of that cliff. And not only is he that, he's my refuge. That where he is, that hide, that rock, that fortress, that place of refuge, there I am standing in him. That's my position. Where are the enemies? That's David's perspective. That's how big God is. That's how incredible he has been in my life. This is, this is poetry. This is imagery that is to give you just an unveiling of the majesty of God. This is, this is a man who is passionate. This is a man who is pouring out his heart before God, realizing that God has delivered him from all of his enemies over the years, and he is singing this out in passage, passion. He is the God of my strength. Again, focus there on a rock and how strong a rock is. And his declaration 
in whom I will trust. The language there for trust, he is the one that I am going to take refuge in. So he just declares this majesty, how great and awesome a fortress would be on top of a cliff, how impenetrable that would be. In him, I will trust. In him, that's where the place that I am going to take refuge. He is my shield, so don't think of some little, you know, pansy shield that you're hiding behind for the darts. He is your massive wall of a shield that every single dart that is coming at you, he is there taking it. Not that the arrows are hitting you, he is your shield, that shield of faith. Not only that, he is the horn of my salvation. He is the horn, he is the strength of my liberty, is the language. Whenever you see horn in the Old Testament, you think of an animal that has horns. This is, a, you know, animals headbutting each other and those kinds of things. It's a, it's a symbol of strength. And the bigger the animal's horn is in, in as you look at, uh, the beast of the field of God's creation, the bigger the horns are, the more powerful that animal is. So the imagery of a horn is associated with strength. He is the strength of my liberty. He is my stronghold. Literally, he is my high point, the same imagery. And my refuge, the focus on refuge there, he is the one that I retreat to. Not that I'm running away from the enemy, uh, looking back at the enemy in fear, as in um, I'm retreating away from my enemy. He's my retreat in the one. He is the one that I find peace. You think of, a, you know, going on a men's retreat or a women's retreat or just going on any kind of something that you would define as a retreat. It's not uh, shirking away from the enemy. It's finding that peace and that tranquility and that paradise in God. You are my savior. The idea with that word is that he is spacious and ample and broad is the word. You save me, you help me, you save me from violence. For those of you who have been here as we've been traveling through First and Second Samuel, or if you've read through the passages before, I've repeatedly commented on how violent that culture was, how violent our culture is today. But David is a man who had face-to-face conflicts, violence, hand-to-hand combat in warfare. This is a man who knows violence. This is a man who knows what it's like to be hunted. He was hunted by Saul for over a decade. He was hunted by his sons. He's been hunted by the enemies. David knows what it's like to be hunted. And when he is expressing his heart to God in this song, you are the one who has saved me from the violence of others. That line has great weight in David's life. I will call upon Yahweh. He is worthy to be praised. And when I call upon you, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Those who hate me, who are hating adversaries, David is looking, I have called on you my whole life. And there you have been to deliver me and save me and rescue me from all of those adversaries that are filled and flooded with hate. How do you like David's God? Pretty awesome, yeah? 
Is he your God? I'm serious in that question. My, My heart's prayer for you, my heart's prayer for me, I want us to know, to experience, to understand, to be in awe of the one who created it all. Just calling God Yahweh, the self-existent one, that is, I, I, it, it always sits me down and sobers my mind up. What is he? I only know this creation. I only know this creation through the senses that he's given to me. When God says that he is spirit, what is spirit? What is he that he is outside of this physical universe that he has created? He is awesome. So if he is that big and that grand and that powerful, and he's not some God who just set things in motion and says, well, now I'm leaving you to it. Have fun. He is there passionately engaged in my life. When I call to him, what does he hear? He hears my voice. And not only does he hear the voice that I'm saying, he hears the underlying motivations behind why I'm crying out to God. He sees me and he knows me. Amber, praying through uh, Psalm 139 during worship this morning, he sees me. There's nowhere I can hide from him. There's nowhere I want to hide from him. Search me out, Lord. Transform this heart into your heart. Give me your eyes. Give me your ears. Give me your words. Give me the broad path forward in your son. All of this, I'm front heavy in this declaration, in this song, because it is awesome, and it is foundational, and now David's going to get into life experience. But he's not getting into the specifics. He's getting into the images to help us to see and understand how God has saved us and been a savior in our own context. So verse 5 says, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. I was overpowered. The sorrows of Sheol, the place of the dead, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. David's imagery, again, this is, this is parallelism. This is Hebrew poetry. He's talking about death. If you ever stared death in the face or destruction, your, your fear is right here before you. It is, it's washing over your mind. You feel like you're drowning. What do you do in that moment? What did David do? David said, in my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried out to my God. And he heard my voice from his temple And my cry entered his ears, and God said, good luck. It's not the attitude of our God. We are told anytime you seek him, you pursue him, you hunt after your God, your Savior, your creator, your provider, and all that he's declared himself to be, every time you cry out to him, he hears And he will attend to you according to his will, not according to your will and your wants as you're crying out. He knows what you need, and this is this position of faith and trust. This in verse 8, again, this is is all poetic imagery. So don't think about this literally, but just think in the poetry that it's conveying because it is a storm that is rolling in here. As we've listened to this past week, anybody seen the flashes of lightning? Have you felt the thunder? 
we were, uh, this is sometime earlier this week, we were sitting on the couch and it was a very light flash and it was long away because it took about five seconds for the thunder to hit, but the thunder that hit shook the house. That kind of imagery is what David is conveying here in regards to the power of God. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Is he angry at me? No. He is angry at sin, and he'll have nothing to do with it. That's why he dealt with it through his son on the cross. But those who choose to abide in it, he is angry towards it. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. You know, one of those little fat babies with the arrows that you see in the artwork? Not what a cherub looks like at all. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his nostrils. Again, all of that is poetic imagery in regards to, I cried out to God for help from my enemy, and he here is my warrior God coming out of his temple and coming in in all of his power to deal with my adversary. That's our God. Verse 17, he sent from above, he took me. In the New Testament, when we talk about the rapture, the rapture, the, the literal word means that he seizes and he takes. There is coming a day every believer in Jesus Christ is going to be seized and taken by your king. Same language here that David is expressing. He heard and he reached down and he took me. Not in this violent action towards me, but he has taken me to himself and what enemy is going to come against the self-existent one and be victorious over him? None. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of those waters, out of that distress that's overwhelming me and overpowering me. He delivered me from my strong enemy. And you can put in that uh, definition, whatever you like. It, it may be sin, it may be culture, it may be demonic. He is the one who delivers me from my strong enemies. They're not weak. They have power. They're very real. But God, so much stronger. By the way, parallel to this for your notes, Ephesians chapter 6, when it's talking about spiritual warfare, where do you stand? You stand in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. Same imagery that Paul is conveying in Ephesians 6. It's the same language that David is conveying here in 2 Samuel 22. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity, in the day of my destruction. That's when the enemy's standing there trying to finish me off. But the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Do you think the self-existent one, when he looks at you, do you think that he delights in you? Yes or no? I hope you answer that with an emphatic, confident, powerful, holy yes. There are things when I look at myself, I hate and I don't like. I know that you see all of your imperfections. When God sees you, there is a singular thing that is necessary for him to delight in you. Do you know what that is? Turn to Hebrews, hold your place there. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 really quick. This is extremely important. Because the only thing that pleases God is faith in his son. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. That's Genesis chapter 4, but in this chapter, many examples of faith are being listed out. In Genesis 5, um, it says, by faith, is the context of Enoch, so he says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. But uh, for before he was taken, Enoch, this is the testimony over Enoch's life. He pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. If you underline in your Bibles, if you're taking notes, if you're thinking right now, one sentence. Without faith, and all of its definition that we're being provided for in this chapter, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, David's statement in his song that God is taking delight in him, it is because David trusts in, is confident in, hopes in Yahweh all the days of his life. For he who comes to God must believe, one, that he is, that God is, that he is the self-existent one, and two, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You think David's a man who diligently sought God? That's why we're studying his life, and that's why his life is preserved for us. We're told that God was looking for a man after his own heart. And then we're told that he selected David. So therefore, David's a man who was seeking after God's own heart, believing that he is, and God, you are going to reward me for just trusting you. 
for simply believing that you are who you've made yourself known to be and for seeking after you in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, when I'm rebellious, when I feel like it, when I don't feel like it, when I'm on the mountaintop, when I'm in the valley, Lord, I trust you. There's no one else to trust in. I've tested the others. They're not real. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. But there, my self-existent God, oh my, do I trust in you. And I'm so glad you delight in me. Verse 21, the religious and legalistic mind has a rough go with this next section. The heart of faith doesn't have any problem with it at all. Listen to what David says. This is uh, verse 21 of 2 Samuel 22. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed, not guiltily departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. This is, it's, it's easy, and the confession of faith recognizes what David is declaring. The confession of somebody who is legalistic, somebody who is religious, somebody that thinks that God owes them because of their works, this is confusing. So confusing that many, if not most commentators, are going to say, this psalm is out of order in David's life because David could not have said these words after his sin with Bathsheba. Was David a sinner? David committed adultery. David committed murder. He confessed his sin. And what did Nathan tell David in regards to his sin? God has put away your sin, not God has put you away. This is, this is a heart that knows and understands the washing, the grace, the mercy, the cleansing, the atonement, the reconciliation that the self-existent one has brought about in his creatures. David is saying, I am clean, and it's not I am clean because I've never been dirty. He is able to proclaim that he's clean because God has declared him to be clean by faith, not because of his works. All you have to do is go sit in Psalm 51. God doesn't desire the sacrifices. God doesn't desire the offerings. He desires a broken and a contrite heart that he will not despise. David has been washed, he has been purged, he has been cleansed of his sins and is able in bold faith and declaration. This is the kind of faith that you need to have in regards to the reality of who God is and how much he delights in you. If you have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, your sins are gone. As far as the east it's from the West. They never touch. You were that clean. Removed from you. His book of remembrance. God knows and sees everything. 
Your life is fully exposed to him, all of it. Through faith in Jesus Christ, all of those dark patches, all the filth blotted out of that narrative through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's gone. David's a man who knows his God. David is a man who has encountered enemies his entire life. David is a man who has messed up. David is a man who has sought forgiveness. David is a man who has meditated on the nature and character and the goodness of God. David is a man who has taught others about his life experience. And he can boldly say, without anybody able to point a finger at him, well, what about this? And well, what about that? I am clean and I am righteous because he has made me clean and he has given me his righteousness. That is why God delights in you, in his son. You like David's poetry? I love this poetry. It's awesome. All right, pick it up, church. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, the twisted, the perverted, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp. Who is the light of Israel? God's the light of Israel. David there is his anointed one imaging God. God, you know, David in the previous chapter, you're the lamp of Israel. David, who's the real lamp of Israel? The Lord, you are my lamp. You are my light. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop. Look at this. This isn't just his David and Goliath scene, but yeah, he's got that in history. One man can run against an army. Is that true? No. In God? Yes. Next sentence, for by you, by my God, I can leap over a, a wall. Do you believe you can fly? You better believe you can fly. Any of you jump over a, a fortified wall? It's impossible. And this is hyperbolic, poetic language. In God, you can do anything because nothing is impossible for him. If he's leading it and he's directing it, his will shall be performed. As for God, his way is perfect. I love this declaration. The word of the Lord is proven. David is a man who has read the Old Testament. Law of Moses. David is a man who through his life and experience can say, I've tested it and I've proved it. The word of God is proven and is held to be true in my life. And I can give you that same testimony from Genesis to Revelation. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Who is God except the Lord? If you have not answered that question, I beg of you, answer it. Who is God? Why do you exist? Why are you here? You have a day of death coming. Death is staring you in the face. What's your eternity? Where's your hope? Where's your confidence? Where's your question marks? This is, this is a great question to 
ask, not wagging your finger, but in honesty. Who is God except the Lord? I've answered it for myself because he's made himself known to me. Who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and he is my power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. You also have given me the shield of your salvation, your gentleness, has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. Listen to the contrast of the images where in the beginning I called out on the Lord to deliver me and here God comes rushing out of the temple in all of his power. That same God is the one that gently touches me and cleanses me and nudges me and directs me it's his gentleness that I, that I am able to have the life that I have, the wife that I have, the children that I have, the parents that I have, the congregation that I get to take a part of, the work that I get to do with my hands. It is all because my God, he is so tender and gentle with me. He knows when I need a spanking. He knows when I need a rebuke. He knows when I need encouragement. He sees me. He delights in me. And he's gentle with me. He's enlarged my path under me. I'm not sitting here tiptoeing through life, worried that I'm going to fall off the edge of the cliff. He has enlarged my path underneath me along the narrow path of following his son. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. Great boldness here. Again, when you sit in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the boldness of that... Uh, you know, that we're standing in the strength of the Lord and the description of the armor, there is no armor that's protecting the back. You know, you got the helmet of salvation and the breastplate and the shield and, you know, the sword of the spirit. It is all forward-looking. You are engaging the enemy, not in your strength, not in your weakness. You were standing strong in the power of the Lord. But we have enemies in our life. And again, you got to use this language cautiously because it's not like we're going out there hacking people's heads off. But that enemy, that obstacle, we are moving forward and engaging as the Lord leads us. And I have destroyed them. I have stopped them and smashed them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with the strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You also have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those that hated me. They looked, but none, uh, there was none to save them, even to the Lord, and he did not answer them. The enemies, they even started crying out to Yahweh, but Yahweh didn't answer them because... They were still the enemies of God. Verse 43, then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod on them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. Now, is this to be your heart towards other human beings? It's poetry. It's the imagery you place yourself in the context, the culture, and the battle of David's day. What he is conveying to the culture is through that battle imagery in regards to the strength that God has given him as he puts forth his energy and his work and his effort in the Lord's strength in engaging the enemy. You have delivered me from the strivings of my people. 
Talking about the outside enemies, God, you have also delivered me from all of the contentious strivings of my people, your people, that you have appointed me to lead. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts, from their prisons. Worship team, come on up. As the worship team is coming up, listen to David's conclusion to his song that he is singing. Yahweh lives. He is alive. He always was. He is. He always will be. Yahweh, the self-existent one, lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted. Let him be, let him be lifted up. We were in uh, Nehemiah on Wednesday night, and as Nehemiah is praying and singing his own song, an idea came out of it that for all eternity... God, Yahweh, will always be higher than and more than the praise that will ever be given to him. Now sit in that statement. We will praise God for all eternity as a community. Is that a lot of praise? The praise that we offer him for all eternity will never meet the praise that he is worthy of receiving. That's how awesome Yahweh is. Let God be exalted. He is the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Amen. All right, church, we're going to turn to response. I've intentionally ordered our service to give us space and time at the conclusion for you to do whatever business that you need to do with our God. You may need communion where you need to come and you need to remember his body, his blood, his sacrifice, his covenant. You may need to just sit and think. You may need to write something down. You may need to write some questions down that you want answered. You may need clarity. You may need to stand up and just shout his praise and run around this room. It's okay. I want you to, we want you to have the space to respond to Yahweh. Not to me, not to the people around you, not to instruments and voices. We want you to have the space as often as we can provide it for you to respond to who Yahweh has made himself known to you as. He has manifested himself to me in countless ways, and I treasure all of them.
I have gratitude in how he's made himself known to me this week. But for you as creatures, in the next couple of songs, press into worship, prayer, thanksgiving, confession, hope. May you be able to state with David in bold declaration, Yahweh delights in me. And it's because I believe in him. Because he's worthy of my trust. Amen?